God, we come to you today just to concentrate on you and just learn from you, God. And, Lord, I just pray that you would clear our minds, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And also just um, let us just focus on you and have your undivided attention tonight, Lord. Um, just please guide us and just fill us with your uh, knowledge and with your wisdom, Lord. Um, we thank you so much for... Uh, how majestic you are, Lord, and just the the grace that you have for us, Lord. And thank you so much, God. So, Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, in starting, we were going to talk about integrity earlier this afternoon, but uh, I think we had too many talks planned or something like that. We'll have to evaluate this, but definitely time was short, and and we don't want to just cram this night full of talks till 10. So, we're going to bypass that. But there was a big note that I really wanted to hit in that talk, and that's that a lot of times we think of integrity as far as sins of commission or, like, things that we do that we're not supposed to do, right? Uh, and I wanted it to relate a lot to the Great Commission, and I wanted it, us to realize that when we don't fulfill the Great Commission, when we don't follow Christ's call to make disciples, uh, that's an issue of integrity as well, right? Uh, we're not walking in obedience to the third greatest commandment. We'll talk about that more. So what we're talking about tonight has a lot to do with integrity. You could be the most blameless uh, Christian alive in terms of active sins and still be missing the mark more than anybody if we're not following some of the most basic commands. So this is a big issue of personal integrity, but it, it goes far beyond that too. So the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's what we call the Great Commission, right? What does that start with? We talked about it this week. Before you can make a disciple, what do you have to do? God? Well, I don't know. Like, what has? Okay, you're you're discipling Kiva now, and we're mm -hmm. starting this process. But what had to happen before that? The witness to her. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. And to go out. Yeah, exactly. You you went. You you went, and then you shared the gospel, and then somebody responded to the gospel, and now you get to help that person grow in their faith. Right. So that's the whole process of making disciples. Uh, it, making disciples is not just discipleship, but it starts with evangelism, right? Uh, and it continues through discipleship. Uh, the, Russ says the greatest commission is the greatest challenge given by the greatest person for the greatest good. And that's true for, for all you guys that are competitive in nature, and I think all of you guys are. We saw that this week. Uh, this is the greatest, not competition, this is the greatest adventure that God has ever given us. And we as men specifically, we're designed to thrive on adventure, right? We don't want just, oh, I'm going to go sit in church. God gave us the great commission as the greatest adventure we can experience in this life. And I think the most exhilarated, the most uh, <coughs> the most on fire, the most excited, the most, all those that I've ever been, has happened when I was sharing my faith, making disciples, things like that. Some of the scariest situations that turned out for the highest good. This is a huge adventure that God gave us. It's the third greatest commandment. Okay, guys? This is the only commandment that Jesus started with, all authority has been given to me, so go and do this. And it's the last big commandment that he gave us before he left this earth. So, I mean, I, I think that most people would agree it's the third greatest commandment. 
and it's a way of fulfilling the first two, right? It's a way of loving God, and it's a way of loving other people. If I, if I love people, I'm going to share Christ with them. I'm going to help them grow in their walks with God. If I don't do those things, I'm not illustrating love for my brother. So I think that this is the third greatest commandment, and it's a great way of fulfilling the other two greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Right, And honestly, guys, when, when we're fulfilling the Great Commission or when we're sharing our faith and making disciples, we grow closer to God. A lot of times we just think, I have to do this. It's almost like a, a rote act of obedience, but it's not. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, it talks about being fellow workers with God, okay, or co-laborers with God. And I know for Aaron and I, when we do things together, that's when we feel the closest, right? I think for you guys, it's the same. Awesome, Lauren. I think for all of you guys... If you have a close friend, you probably feel very close to that person when you're doing something that you both love, right? When we are sharing our faith, when we're making disciples, that is probably as close to God's heart as you will ever be in your life. And if you want to develop intimacy in your walk with God, it really starts there with making disciples, I think. I mean, it starts with God's word, it starts with prayer, it starts with all this, but it's shown in in the actions that come out of those things. And I think that when you're sharing your faith, when you're making disciples, um, you will find that you feel closer to God than almost any other time. I mean, what was it like this week when this girl sang, yes, I want to pray to receive Christ? I mean, you're probably as exhilarated as you've ever been in your life, right? I mean, it's quite exciting to know that you and God are working in a tangibly evident way together, right? I mean, his hand is obvious, and you're just walking with him, trusting him step by step. So fellowship increases with shared ambitions, purposes, and actions. Does that make sense? As you're working together, fellowship increases. In 1 John 3.18, it says, Let us not love with word or tongue, but with action and in truth. And this is what God is after. He's not looking for Christians that are going to sing good songs, wear good shirts, and go to lots of Christian meetings. You know, that, And I mean, God, in his, <laughs> all through the Bible, says that stuff is, is pathetic if it's not accompanied by lifestyle and action. I mean, if it is accompanied by those things, it's great. But when that replaces the action that God's called me to, that's not good. And see, he's called us to lives of action, specifically as it relates to the Great Commission. In Romans 12:1, it talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable act of worship. This basically means living a lifestyle of worship. Worship does not mean singing. Uh, Laura has talked about a lot of definitions this week for different spiritual words that we use. I think some of you guys have too. Worship literally means a life of submission to God. Does that make sense? Uh, so that can that can happen when I'm praising God in church singing, but that is not worship. That's just one part of worship. Worship is a lifestyle of serving and submitting to God, doing what is important to Him. Now, this is what's really cool. How many of you guys remember what Jesus said in John 4? He said, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Remember that? I used to think, what does that mean? It means people like sing in spirit and in truth. It's like, that sounds pretty shallow. <laughs> but I've heard that preached a lot of times, and it's very shallow. What, what Jesus is saying here is, if you're really worshiping God, you're going to worship in obedience to the truth of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of worship that honors God. Does that make sense? It's not just this singing in a church thing, but it's a life of obedience to his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's most evident when I'm making disciples, as he's called me to, fulfilling, in essence, the first three greatest commandments all in one action. 
Okay? So as I'm, as I'm making disciples, guys, I'm worshiping God the way he desires to be worshipped, which is a lot more than, than so many Christians have been trained to do, right? So many of us have been taught, like, you know, you go to church and you sing some songs and that's good, but it's so much more than that. Romans eight seventeen says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Clayton's been sharing this a few times this week. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. So we're co-laborers with him. We're also co-heirs with him. And this is the deal, guys. We're going to share in his sufferings, right? A lot of times you guys are going to get opposed as you make disciples. You will. And, and I hate to tell you this, guys, but you're going to get opposed more often by Christians than by non-Christians. You know? Mm -hmm. A lot of times Christians are going to come up and say, don't share your faith. You're going to offend people. Or else they're going to say, you don't need to do that. Come to this concert instead. Or, I mean, we've actually had a church in town come to campus and try to get us kicked off campus, you know? And I, 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 don't, wanna, I don't want this to come across weird because nobody in here is from Durango, so you don't know too well, but it was our church, Aaron and my church, okay? And uh, I talked to the pastor about it. He doesn't know who it was that was trying to get us kicked off campus, and I told him, I don't want to know. I said, don't look. But I just said, I want you to know that the campus came to us and said somebody from the River Church was trying to get us kicked off campus. Um, a lot of times you're going to get opposed by Christians. You're also going to get opposed by non-Christians. You're going to get opposed by the world. You're going to get opposed by your own flesh, right? Your flesh is going to say, I don't want to do this. You're going to get opposed ultimately by Satan. And often Satan will work through those other areas to oppose you. Now here's what I want to encourage you with, guys. Jesus told us this would be, would be happening. In Matthew 24, he said that we'd be persecuted, put to death, and hated by all nations because of him. <laughs> That's pretty hardcore. Persecuted, put to death, and hated by all nations because of him. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there's a point where, as, as a Christian, I can't say, I'm going to live in this comfortable <clears throat> bubble. I'm going to face persecution, and it's not going to be fun. And I don't know what form it's going to be in, but I'm trusting God. Now, I want to give you some examples from the book of Acts. This will blow your mind. Read through the book of Acts. I think it's everything but in two chapters. In chapter 1 and chapter 10, I haven't found direct opposition to the early church. But in every other chapter in the book of Acts, they're opposed. And in more chapters than not, it's from the body of Christ. Okay, which is scary, but it's a reality of if you're going to make disciples, you're going to face this, and I want you to be ready. Now, here's the deal. In chapter 2, Peter and the apostles are made fun of by the Gentiles. In chapter 4, uh, Peter and John are arrested and imprisoned. In chapter 5, the apostles are arrested, imprisoned, and flogged. chapter 6, Stephen is arrested and falsely accused. In chapter 7, he's stoned to death. In chapter 8, the church is persecuted. In chapter 9, the church is continued. Is or continues to be persecuted uh, by Saul. And after his conversion, uh, some of the Gr Jews in Greece also try to kill him. Okay, um, It goes on in chapter 11. They're opposed by legalistic Christians here. In chapter 12, the Christians are persecuted by Herod and Peter's in prison. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are opposed by Elymas, the sorcerer. They're talked bad about and persecuted by the Jews. In chapter 14, Paul is stoned and left for dead. In chapter 15, they're opposed by legalistic Christians again. There's this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas also. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas are imprisoned and beaten in Philippi. 
In chapter 17, a rioting mob runs them out of Thessalonica. We've been to Thessalonica and seen where this happened. And then the Bereans were initially receptive towards them, okay? But then the Thessalonians come up to Berea and kick them out. We were also in Berea. It was a really cool trip. Uh, just a side note in Berea, Paul goes there to point the way to Christ. If you go to Berea today, they have, a, they have this whole thing to Paul, like this whole thing idolizing Paul, this big this huge, uh, what do you call it, shrine to Paul, basically. We thought it was so ironic that his whole message was God and their whole, what they remember is Paul. That's funny. But anyway, in uh, chapter 18, they're opposed, abused, and arrested by the Jews in Corinth. In chapter 19, they're opposed by a rioting mob in Ephesus. In chapter 20, uh, they're plotted against by the Jews in Greece. In chapter 21, Paul was arrested and the Jews attempted to kill him in Jerusalem. In chapter 22, the Jews chanted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. What if we were witnessing on Main Street last week and somebody said, rid the earth of Justin, he is not fit to live. Okay. <laughs> what would you do? Just kind of, I'd probably just stare him down. And say, oh, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're, you're tough. I'd be like, eh, I'm out of here. Okay. If there's a lot of them, that'd be different. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a whole city. And they're like, I think that's where they say, we're not going to eat or drink until he's dead. <laughs> it's pretty hardcore. In chapter, is that right? You'd know I'm that, maybe. In chapter 23, Paul is put on trial, struck, and the Jews again plotted to kill him, vowing, okay, here it is in chapter 23, that they would not eat anything until we have killed Paul. <laughs> okay. That's what they said. We will not. Yeah, they're like, we will not eat anything until we have killed Paul. In chapters 24 through 26, Paul is on trial, okay, before several different people. In chapter 27, he's shipwrecked, so he's facing opposition from physical circumstances even, not necessarily even, you know, people. And then in chapter 28, he's bitten by a snake and imprisoned in Rome, okay? So, so like, if you look at the book of Acts, which we all look at is kind of like the model for what God... <laughs> what we would want God to be doing now, right? Okay? It's just full of opposition. And if you guys go to 1 Corinthians 16, oh, I think it's verse 8. I don't have it down here. But Paul says, I'm going to go to Ephesus because a big door for effective work is open for me there. And there's much opposition. Okay? So, like, Paul's not going, I'm going to get opposed there, so I'm not going there. He goes, I'm going to get opposed there, and man, there's a big door for effective work, so I'm going. So what I want to encourage you guys with is don't look at Making disciples as something that you will do as long as you don't get opposed. Because that's never going to happen. You will be opposed. By friends, by Christians, by non-Christians, by weather, by snakes, by, <laughs> by uh, mountains and snow. Who knows? You guys will get opposed by a lot. Paul described it this way in 2 Corinthians 11. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. This is hardcore. I mean, that almost brought you near death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a, Can you imagine being shipwrecked three different times and surviving? I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. If I had even been 10% of those things, I would probably have quit by now. <laughs> okay? And, but see, sometimes we, we are, like what Russ said, what does it take to get you going? What does it take to stop you? It's not much that takes to stop us. 
what I want to encourage you guys with is if you can climb that mountain in rain and snow and make it to the top and survive, you can, you can survive somebody saying that you're stupid for sharing your faith, even if it's a friend or a family member or a Christian. You guys remember this story uh, from April 18, 2007. Five Muslims, I'm quoting here from Voice of the Martyrs, five Muslims entered a Christian publishing company and killed three believers in the southeastern province of Malatya. The, yeah, the three believers, and it gives their names, were having a Bible study and prayer meeting. Five young Muslim men who they had been sharing with for quite a while were also present. After the pastor read one chapter, the Muslim men tied each of them up and began torturing them for three hours. Tillman was stabbed 156 times, Nakati 99 times. They were disemboweled and their intestines sliced up in front of their eyes while they were still alive. They were emasculated and watched as those body parts were destroyed. Fingers were chopped off, their noses, mouths, and anuses were sliced open. And all that was lit on fire, okay, while they were still alive. Finally, their throats were slit from ear to ear. Okay, in an act that hit front pages in the largest newspapers in Turkey... Tillman's wife, Suzanne Geske, in a, in a television interview, expressed her forgiveness. She did not want revenge. She told reporters, Oh God, forgive them, for they know not what they do, wholeheartedly agreeing with the words of Christ on Calvary. Okay? And the, and the church there prayed, or, or said to the media, Don't pray against persecution. Pray for perseverance. Isn't that amazing? Now, Austin and I got a chance to talk with some of the personal friends of these three guys. Okay? And Austin said, what's it going to take to win this country for Christ? And you know what they said? The tough soil of this country is going to be broken up with the blood of martyrs. Okay. These guys' friends are saying, we're sharing our faith willing to, to die for this country to know about Jesus Christ. You know, I, We have brothers and sisters all around the world that are right there. I've heard that it's 140,000 people a year are going to be martyred for Christ. I can't, I don't. I can't picture that number. I think they're including different genocides of Christian peoples, you know, and things like that. It's unreal, you guys. Uh, we have so little to face. You know, in America, I'm not going to get killed for my faith. But but sometimes I back down if, if somebody might not like me because I'm sharing. And over here, they're going, you know what? We're going to share even if it means we die today. And I just wonder what would happen in our country if Christians had that kind of boldness here, you know. What would happen if Christians said, I don't care what the world thinks. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. You know, I'm going to be sold out for Jesus, whether or not this world is. Okay, we have it pretty easy. Paul said our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He said his troubles were light and momentary. That makes mine, like, non-existent. The worst thing that's ever happened to me was getting hit in the back of the neck with a snowball. When I was sharing the four lies, I took Kirk Mirig out one time, yeah. and somebody was like, just being stupid because they saw us witnessing and threw a snowball and hit me in the back of the head. I mean, it bounced off and that was the end of it. It's not very bad, you know. Uh, it's not very bad. So what are you going to let stop you guys? I want you to think about that as you leave this place. What will, let, what will you let stop you from, shame, from being the world changer that God has created you to be? He didn't create you for a little impact. He created you guys to really change this world. Okay, so opposition always accompanies an open door. So be ready for it. Be ready for it. This is the most exciting time in history to be involved in the Great Commission. And I honestly think, guys, that Paul would have chopped off his big toe to have been able to be here today to see what we get to see. I mean, honestly, think about it. Paul, when he was alive, they talked about Christianity in terms of hundreds and maybe thousands. 
Okay, we talk about Christianity in terms of hundreds of millions. They talked about it in terms of a couple countries. We talk about it in terms of almost every country on the planet. For the first time in the history of the world, and I'm going to share some stats in a minute, in a minute within our lifetimes, it is possible that every human being alive could be a Christian. It's mathematically possible. That was not possible during Paul's time. Okay, this is like, Aaron and I, we don't watch TV, so for our date nights, we'll, bless you, for our date nights, we'll download things off the History Channel on iTunes and all this, and we've been watching all this stuff on Patton, and Patton had the Nazis totally in this, in this valley. I forget what it was called, and it was towards the end of the war, and he said, I'm going in and destroying them all. Like, he was very aggressive. Like, go in, what was that? That would have been practically It would have ended the war, yeah. And Eisenhower and, what was the British general? Montgomery. Eisenhower and Montgomery stopped him and said, it's too risky. Don't you, you're not allowed to do it. Okay? And Patton was just dying. Like, I want to get in there and end this thing now. But see, they, and they made an interesting quote on that. I forget the exact quote. I need to get that. But they said, some people look at everything in life in terms of what could be lost. And some people look at everything in life in terms of what could be won. And they said Patton was the second. He didn't look at what could be lost, but he looked at everything in terms of what could be won. And I want to be that kind of Christian, you know. I don't want to look at this potential that we're in for the whole world to come to know Christ in our lifetimes and say, I'm going to wait for another generation to do it, you know. Um, within two generations, it's anticipated that America will not be a Christian nation, that we will be a minority in this country. Obama already declared it. Yeah, yeah, interestingly. Okay, guys, Matthew 9.37, I want you guys to believe this. This is true. What does Jesus say in Matthew 9.37? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Okay? When we think about how open people are around us to the gospel, what do we typically think? They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear. They've heard it already. Man, remember that guy? That's the first time I've ever heard this. Yeah. <laughs> Justin and I are talking to. That, they're... You can't believe how many students come to our ministry as Christian kids that have never heard the gospel. They think they have, and then they hear it and they're like, oh, never got that last part about making it personal, making it real, you know? Yeah. But honestly, you guys, the harvest is ripe. Even if somebody says, I'm not interested, like hash at the skate park, okay, well, if you're not interested, why'd you talk to us for 45 minutes, <laughs> right? God's working in your heart, dude. You can lie to me all you want and say you're not interested, but I know Jesus said the harvest is ripe. So here's what I want to encourage you guys with. Believe that the harvest is ripe. Don't believe that it's not. Wally and Kelly, you guys might have heard us talk about them briefly. I'm going to keep it short. But Kelly worked with me at Zoomies when I was a college student, and we would do these pocket checks at the end of the day to show we weren't stealing anything. She saw my Bible because I always carried a Bible in my pocket. And uh, when she saw that, she just I was the closing manager that night, and the whole store was closed, and she, it was only the second time we'd ever worked together. And she, she goes, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, God could never forgive me. I've had too much sex. And I said, are you kidding me? Like, God can totally forgive you. Not only can he, he wants to. And we talked for like an hour, and she ended up praying to receive Christ right there, right then. Okay? Like two weeks later, she's in our church with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend comes up, and, and she introduces him to us. It says, you guys have to talk to Wally about what you shared with me. And Aaron and I were dating at this point. And if Aaron hadn't been there, I would doubt my memory on this. I thank God Aaron was there so that never till the day I die will I question what really happened. But here's what Wally says. I'm successful. He owned a concrete pumping business in, in uh, Las Vegas. 
He goes, I own a $500,000 home without a mortgage in Las Vegas. Um, I, I don't even work, you know. He goes, I have a board of directors that runs my company. Uh, I drive whatever cars I want, all this stuff. He had a brand new Saab at the time, which is not a cheap car, you know. And he's just living in Durango, doing the Durango life, you know, skiing, whatever, you know, just doing what people do in Durango. And he goes, if you guys can't tell me how to have Christ in my life, I'm going to kill myself. Can you imagine this? Oh, my gosh. Aaron and I were like, uh... Our afternoon is yours. <laughs> we will go hang out with you as long as you want. We went to Skinny's Grill on Main Street. Remember that? It's the only time I ever ate at Skinny's Grill. And, and we talked for like, I don't know, two hours. And then we went to their house. They were living together at the time. And we shared and shared and shared and shared. And at the end of the day, he, he gave his life to Christ and, uh, and kept growing from there. They ended up breaking up and separating because they wanted their relationship to glorify God. They wanted to personally honor God. And uh, anyway... Wally was an example to me. If I would have seen this rich guy walking down the street, I would not think. He's, this guy's tortured inside. You know, he knows he needs a savior. But the harvest was ripe with Wally, right? And like the story I told about Aaron this week, I was sharing the gospel with a homeless guy in Denver, and a businessman walks up to Aaron, suit and tie. What's your husband doing out there? Oh, he's sharing the gospel with us. Gospel, blah, blah, blah. Aaron goes through the four laws with this businessman. The businessman, the businessman gets saved while the homeless guy makes fun of me outside. Okay? So it's oh, like... Oh, that's the kind you're talking about? Yeah. It's, honestly, guys, we have this stupid mentality that Christ is only relevant to the homeless. You know? Austin and I were joking. I want to make a video about, uh, about the rich and have, like, these guys driving around in Lexuses and all this stuff with gold rings and all this and be like, who will go to them? Who will meet them in their tortured state of being? Like, you know what I mean? Just like people in our church all the time, they're like, we're going to be evangelistic. We're going to reach the homeless people of Durango. Like, I've seen one in five years, dude. There are a lot of rich people in the city that need Christ, though, you know? Um, so anyway, guys, the harvest is ripe. Even if people look like they don't need Jesus, they need Jesus just as much as anybody, if not more, right? A lot of homeless people I know are very humbled and know their dependence on God. And a lot of rich people I know don't. Exactly. So, Why do they need a Savior? Yeah. They have everything in life. Yeah, supposedly. absolutely. But they're empty inside just as much as anyone else. And you guys, we have the answer. We have the answer. And we've been given a commission from God to share that with a world that needs to hear it. Okay? And so that's what we're called to do. So the harvest is ripe. Believe it. Don't believe anything different. Okay, here's the next one in John 12, 32 and 33. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. Right? In the next verse, 33, it says he said this concerning the manner of death in which he would die. He was crucified. He was lifted up on a cross. That verse does not mean if I glorify God, he will draw all men to himself, although that's obviously true. <laughs> okay? But what it means is Jesus said, as soon as I'm crucified, from that point forward, I will draw every man to myself. Okay? That has a lot of theological implications. I mean, that includes all the Native Americans that lived before the gospel got here. I don't know how God did it or how he revealed himself, or I don't even want to touch it. It's between God and them. But I know he doesn't lie, and I, I know he said every man. So what I, what I can tell you is right now, every human being, all six point whatever billion of them on this planet, God is already drawing them to himself, already working on their heart. You go up and talk to anyone, you don't have to wonder. I wonder if God's working on this person's heart. I mean, you can take it. As law, God is already working on their heart. Just how far along are they? Yeah, exactly. Well, why are you in their path at this time? <laughs> Whatever part of the path they're on, you're there for God's reason to help get them along on that path. 
I mean, there's not an interaction you have that's insignificant. You know, and that's one of the, the biggest areas where I feel like I blow it in the Christian walk is by going a week at a time without sharing my faith. Austin and I are debating a, a very scary, we should just do it, dude. We should think about it. But our idea is to keep each other accountable, to share our faith every single day of our lives where we're not like camped out at some 12,000 foot lake, you know, share with a squirrel or something. But, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, you guys, fish, you, yeah. <laughs> um, you guys, the harvest is ripe, and he's working on every single person. The crudest, most anti-God atheist you know, God's working on their heart, right? God's working on their heart. And the reason you know him is because he wants to use you in the process, Okay. If you begin to have that view about your life, man, the adventure becomes real. This is like eco-challenge on crack, right? I mean, this is like every person I encounter, there's a reason for that interaction. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't waste a word, right? Every person he talked to is like life-changing word, you know? I mean, just rock their world. Okay, so believe God, don't believe cultural lies. Guys, you don't have to befriend people before you share the gospel with them. Thank God. Otherwise, it would take you hundreds of thousands of years that you don't have, right? <laughs> we, we work on college campuses, and sometimes people say, friendship evangelism is the way God works. And I'm like, absolutely. But how long would it take you to befriend 10,000 people? We were at a school in Armenia, and my brother Dave said, how long would it take you to befriend 140,000 people? Because there are six of you. <laughs> okay. So if you're only doing friendship evangelism, you're not going to reach this campus. At some point, you have to start sharing with people that you've never met before. Ministry evangelism. doesn't mean friendship evangelism is wrong. It's actually very good, and it's probably a lot more effective on average than ministry evangelism. But if I want to reach everybody that God's put in my sphere of influence, there, there's a point where I have to share boldly, okay, even with people that I've never met before. And if you look at the Gospels, I don't know an instance where they shared with somebody they were friends with. Look at Philip and the Ethiopian. God's like, boom, here you are in a chariot with a guy I've never met before. You know what I mean? He's not like, well, God, I have to become friends with him first, and then I'll share. You know? The guy's like, explain to me from Isaiah. I need to know. Um, what about Jesus talking to these multitudes? What about Jesus calling his disciples? He's like, uh, fisherman, dude, um, follow me. You know? He wasn't like, let's go get a hamburger first and talk and become friends. I want to encourage you guys, become friends and share fa your faith with your friends. Absolutely. But don't see that as a necessary obstacle to cross before you can share your faith. Jesus is attractive enough. Jesus is attractive enough. Absolutely. He draws men unto himself. I don't draw men unto him. Right? I don't, I'm not the one that's like, I was really friendly to this guy, so uh, now he's going to like Jesus. <laughs> right? It's like Jesus' words alone are going to meet that guy's needs. And I get to share those. That's really cool. I mean, I didn't know Wally from Adam the day that Wally became a Christian. And, uh, and now we're going to be in heaven for eternity together. And maybe a lot of these people that we've met and shared with doing ministry evangelism, like, it's not just we've ended the relationship there. Like, a lot of them we continue yeah. the relationship and then build them to yeah. friendship on campus, there are people that we started sharing with like five years ago, Jeremy's case, okay? And he's like so hardcore. He, he's like the 
dirtiest mouth I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's, every word is a cuss word. So aggressive, so mean to the, so anti-God. But man, he just is so drawn to the Christians. He just gravitates to us. All, it's, it's insane. But so a lot of those people that we met in ministry evangelism had become close friends that will even come to our house and have dinner with us. Even the secular humanists, the atheists on campus, uh, are very close friends with us now. And it's because we share Christ with them. We didn't wait to become friends first. Uh, so Jesus is relatable to anyone. You don't have to earn the right to be heard. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. Uh, you've heard this thing, preach always and use words if necessary. <laughs> words are necessary. <laughs> That's what the Bible tells us, right? People aren't going to get saved because I buy them some coffee. <laughs> You know, I, I should do that, you know. My good works will glorify God and point people to Christ. But if they're not a matched company. with words, there's a big gaping hole, right? Um, an atheist can be nice. Yeah. And that that, that quote. Yeah, look at Tom Cruise. All the charities look Oprah, he's look at, yeah. I mean, there are very kind, nice, wealthy non-Christians, <laughs> okay? It does, it's. My my kindness is not going to give somebody the answers to life, but Jesus' words will. And my ki my kindness doesn't validate Christ's words. I can invalidate it in a way to people, right, by my life, so I shouldn't do that. Right? I can't share the gospel with somebody and then tell them I hate his guts or something like that, right? But I don't have to validate the gospel. All I have to do is share it. Uh, and by the way, that, that quote, preach always use words if necessary, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's not... It, it's not even a valid quote. It's pieced together from many different quotes that he that he had, and it and it is not anything that he even preached. It's it's a cultural lie that somehow has gotten into the church, and it sounds good. And we need to nip it in the bud and say that's not what the Bible says. Uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's baloney. They need to know Jesus, and they need to know I care. Both, you know. But if I'm sharing Christ, that's an illustration that I care. Mm -hmm. Um. What if some get offended? That's okay. In John 15, Jesus said, the world's going to hate you, okay? In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, to some people, you're going to be the aroma of death. How good does dead stuff smell? Awesome. <laughs> good, right? Okay. Paul says, look, you're going to be that offensive to the, to the world. But you know what? He said, to some, you're going to be the aroma of life. In other words, to some, they're going to hear what you're saying, and it's going to be pure life. That's so valuable. That's that's worth it all right there. Okay, the harvest is ripe. Here's proof. Uh, Wycliffe, that translates the Bible, right, has Vision 2025, 2025. And that basically is their plan to have a Bible translation project started in every dialect and language on the planet by 2025, 16 oh. years from now. Okay, can you believe this? Within two decades... Every person on this planet will be able to read God's word in their native tongue. Paul never saw that day. Lord willing, we'll all be alive in 16 years, and we'll see the first time in the history of the world where every human being can read God's word in their own tongue. Uh, in The Faith Equation, it's a book by Dr. Marvin Bittinger. He's professor of mathematics at Purdue University, and he's authored over 175 college math books. In fact, most of the college textbooks that you read or that you take math courses with, many of them are authored by him. And I went back and checked at our college, and sure enough, here's his name on all these calculus and Calc 2 and Calc 3 and 
diff, diff EQ, differential equations books. I mean, he writes all of them. But I heard a, a seminar by him at DCC, actually, and he was discussing his new book called The Faith Equation. And in it, he claims that by 2033, by 2033, if current evangelism trends continue, every human being on planet Earth will have had an opportunity to hear the gospel. Is that not exciting? But, I mean, it, it requires that we keep doing it <laughs> and increase, right? Because that could stop tomorrow. You guys, every day there are 34,000 converts in South America. Imagine this. 34,000 times a day somebody says yes to Christ in South America. Wow. That sounds in impossible, but just put it in this term. I, I used to think, I don't believe these stats because, I mean, we're so filled with unbelief. And then I realized, how many people go to a stupid baseball game every day? <laughs> I mean, every time the Cardinals play... There are like 40,000 people watching, okay, live, like in the stands that were willing to pay 50 bucks to go see that game. Okay, and every day there are probably 30 games played in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, every day, like 30 times 30, we're looking at almost a million people a day are like paying $30, $40 to sit and watch a baseball game. That's just in our country. So it would be absurd for me to think that 34,000 people a day can't trust Christ in South America, right? And, I mean, just think what we did in, in little old Durango the other day, and there are hundreds of millions of people in this country, 16,000 in Durango. So multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So it makes sense. Every day there are between 28 and 37,000 converts in China. Okay. Between 28 and 37,000 people coming in Christ daily in China. Every day in Africa there are between 23 and 25,000 new believers. Every day there are 16,000 Muslims coming to Christ. That shock you? Okay. 16,000 Muslims in Muslim countries. And this is actually from a Muslim source from several years ago. And I know since then it's just increased in almost every one of these countries. So it's probably more than that. Okay, here it is on Al Jazeera TV, which is the major Muslim television network. December 2001, Sheikh Ahmed al Qatani, and I'm quoting from a book here. A leading Saudi cleric appeared on a live interview on Al Jazeera satellite television to confirm that, sure enough, Muslims were turning to Jesus in alarming numbers. Here's the Muslim talking about this. In every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Al-Qahtani warned, every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. Stunned, the interviewer interrupted the cleric. Hold on, let me clarify. Do we have 6 million converting from Islam to Christianity? Al-Qahtani repeated his assertion every year. The cleric confirmed, adding, a tragedy has happened. Okay, it's from their perspective. It, God is working, guys. Do we want to be a part of this or not, you know? Like, do we want to be, like, passively on the sidelines? It's like Russ's quote. Who was it that said this? The football quote. Tom Landry? No, about the 22 yeah. guys. They asked him, how is Christianity like football? And he said, it's 22 guys on a field in desperate need of rest and 22,000 fans in the stands in desperate need of exercise. That's Christianity. You know, there, there are 60 or 70 missionaries in Turkey, for example, putting their life on the line to share Christ with a country that needs it. And there are 150 million of them in the, here in the U.S. listening to Christian radio and refusing to share their faith. I mean, there is a major issue here. I don't want to get left out of the most exciting time in the history of the world. I want to be actively on the same team with God. 
being a part of the action, don't you? <laughs> don't you guys want to be a part of the action? Yes. Golly, it's so exciting. So worldwide, if you add it all up, and David uh, Barrett and Todd Johnson of the Global Evangelism Movement have come up with this stat. Uh, so it's the only place I've seen this stat. But I don't have any reason not to believe it. And if anything, I think these stats are under projections because they're not including Kiva. <laughs> right. You know, it's like there are a lot of people that don't get put into these numbers just because we're not reporting to anyone. We're not shooting our stats off to anyone. But their their uh, their number that they came up with is that every day, one hundred and seventy-four thousand people are coming to Christ worldwide. Mm. Can you believe that's a million people a week trusting Christ worldwide? Wow. People say Islam is the fastest growing religion. Islam is growing by 69,000 people a day, and it's all through birth, predominantly. Okay? Yeah. Those people haven't even yet decided who they're going to follow. Okay? And in Christianity, we have more than twice that a day coming to Christ through personal decision. What I want you to walk away with is this is thinking amazing. This is exciting. Okay? This is truly the most exciting time in the history of this world to be alive, as far as the Great Commission is concerned that God called us to. So why did he put you here now? Acts 17.26 says that he decided the times and places that we should live. Okay, so why didn't God put Paul here? I mean, I'd think that'd be a better move than putting Nate here, right? <laughs> put me back at the beginning, at the beginning where it's not, like, possible to win the whole thing. You know, I feel like we're in the, in the last game of the NBA playoffs, you know, and and they're like, they're Nate, on it's a tie game. There are 30 <laughs> seconds left. You take the ball. <laughs> and I'm like, uh... <laughs> I can snowboard. <laughs> you should give it to Justin, not to me. <laughs> no, because see, he knew that Paul went through all those things and made it through. You said that you wouldn't even make it through 10% of those things and you would have given up. You have less yeah. like, persecution now here, yeah. so you are more likely to succeed than yeah. the shoes. Well, I think I, li I like your thinking because... God didn't mess this up. It's not an accident that you guys are here on this planet today. Like, you're part of God's strategy. You're part of God's plan. I mean, this is the tragedy of Christianity that he hand-selected you to win the game, and a lot of us won't even pick up the ball, right? It's like God said, you're the one I want to carry it. And we're like, I hate football, <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> I mean, you kind of feel like, God, did you screw this thing up by putting us here? You know, but it's not. You guys, we're in the fourth quarter. We're in the bottom of the ninth. This is the end game, right? This is the end. What's going to happen? Okay, what's going to happen? Now, graphing through 2033, this is just a personal thing. you got to be careful what you learn in school because sometimes you can get freaked out. I t my major in school was in chemistry, right? And I took all these environmentalist classes, okay? Like global ecological issues and environmental chemistry and all these other ones. And as I was taking these classes, they would do, draw me this graph. And I checked it out, and it's everywhere. If you look back in uh, 0 AD, around the time of Christ, gosh, if you have 1, 2, 3, 4, these are billions right here, okay? 6, 7... Eight, nine, ten. Okay, ten billion people, so billions. So this is the population of the Earth. This is time. Okay, now, uh, right now, we're between six and seven billion. So I'm just going to put that line right there. Okay? Now, uh, in zero AD, it was down here in the 
millions, basically. I don't know how many people were alive then. I don't think anybody does, but it was in the millions. Okay, go to 500, 1,000 AD, go to 1,500 AD, go to 2,000, okay, and go to like 2,009 right there. Okay, it goes like this. It starts out real low here. Through 500, it's almost indistinguishable from 0 AD. This is just how mathematics work. This is how any population works, elk populations, bumblebee populations. They're all like this, okay? In 1500, it was getting up to like 500 million, okay, up here, somewhere like that. What's that? Then you had the plague. And you had the plague, and you had some other stuff happen. But it basically crossed 1 billion people sometime at like 1800, like over here, I think, if this is perfect graph. So it hit like 1 billion people, okay? Now, I used to look at this graph, okay, now imagine this. Between 1800 and now, it's gone up to here. You see that? Oh, yeah. Okay, it's gone up to... That is how graph graph works, though. Yeah, it's, in, it's expe especially exponential growth and mm -hmm. multiplication. Okay, now, when you continue this, it's going to hit up here in the 9 to 10 billion range, up here, by like 20... 33. Okay, you've already made the deduction in your head. But I used to wonder, like, what's going to happen? We're not going to have any food to eat. I was freaking out, like, ah, the global population explosion. You know, you've heard of that book and all that. And I just started freaking out. And then it hit me, like, Nate, God is in control of the universe and in control of things like this. What if God, in his, in his divine nature, worked it out so this population explosion would happen at the very exact time when we had the capacity for every human being alive to read his word, when we had the capacity for any of us to travel anywhere in the world, to talk anywhere in the world on our cell phone, so that when the greatest number of people living at any time had ever happened in all of history, at that very time, we would have the greatest capacity to reach the most people for the gospel. Does Dude. that make sense? You think God has That's been... Crazy. You think this is an accident to God? That all this is happening now? It's crazy. You think God is like setting this up for us to win big, to win bigger than anything's ever been won in the history of the world? Yeah. I mean, could we see revival where 9 or 10 billion people come to Christ? I don't know. Not if we don't try, right? Yeah. Not if we're not sharing our faith. But he put us here for this. He put us here now. Um, you guys, okay, if I asked you next year, if you want, you could be on the winning NBA team that wins the... the what do you even call it? NBA championships. NBA championships? Okay, so <laughs> it's not like the Stanley Cup. Okay. What if I said you could be on the winning NBA championship team? I mean, would you want that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then what if I said, but wait a minute, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be rooming with a smelly guy every day for the next year. So what? Okay. No, no, you don't understand. You're going to be up every morning at four running, and it's going to hurt. Awesome. Okay? And you're going to not be able to eat anything you like. You're going to be eating rice cakes so that you can, like, stay in top shape to win this thing. When do I start? <laughs> when do I start? You, can't, you don't understand. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. You still want to do it, right? Yeah. Right? Okay. What about tennis? You could win the French Open next year. It's going to take all that same commitment stuff. Would you do it? Heck yeah. I mean, all you guys, think about what you love most. Would you do it? I mean, I would, I would do it if I could be on the winning St. Louis Cardinal team this, 
this fall. Okay. Because they're going to beat the Rockies, I'm sure. No. Before the Super Bowl. <laughs> before the Super Bowl. Before the World Series. I can't even keep my sports straight. But you guys, like God has called us to be a part of something even bigger than a stupid Super Bowl or a stupid World Series. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it has eternal implications. And for for 100,000 years from now, I don't think we're even going to care too much about the Cardinals or the Rockies, you know? It's fun here on this earth. It won't be fun in eternity, most likely. Um, but what will be interesting in eternity is to know that we were a part of changing eternity forever. That is something that we will never forget in eternity. And I don't want to get there and go, holy cow, that was possible. And I was worried about, like... <laughs> the season finale of, of American Idol, you know? I don't want to be going, what was I thinking? I, I mean, I don't want to be thinking for 10 billion years that I blew it. And I mean, God will wipe away every tear. You'll see that on the Bama tonight in a minute here. But I want my life to count, don't you? I want my life to change this world for Christ. I don't want to just blow it like on, on TV and Doritos, right? <laughs> And we could do that. Or, like, what movies are going to come out? I mean, not that any of that stuff is wrong, and it's not right to be legalistic, but what am I alive for? It isn't for that stuff. I'm alive to make a difference here and now. And you guys, our country in America, the best I can find is that there are, like, 8,000 people a day, or the body of Christ is decreasing by, like, 8,000 people a day. Oh, man. Okay? Now, it's because teenagers are walking away from the faith. It's because people are dying... In the United States of America, and this is like an average of averages, so I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't put money on this, but the best I can find is that the body of Christ in the United States of America is decreasing by 8,000 people a day. Committed Christians are dying, not many new Christians are being made, and a lot of Christians that were counted as Christians when they were a baby and at three years old accepted Christ are now walking away from the faith. Okay? Add all those factors together, we're losing the battle here in America, you know? People ask, are you going to go do ministry overseas? I'm like, uh, I, I think they need to come here right now, you know? Like, revival is happening everywhere but here. Do so, you think it's so ironic that um, we're decreasing while all these other countries are increasing when we're the ones that say, in God we trust? Yeah. You know, like... Uh, so here's the thing. So we are the ones God put here to change that. <laughs> like, he didn't put you on your college campus just to get an education. I mean, we could see life that way. Or we could say... You know, my chemistry degree is not going to be that important 10,000 years into eternity, <laughs> you know. But the people I shared Christ with as a college student are going to be important 10,000 years into eternity, right? I mean, I need a worldview that says every day, whether it's at my work or at my school or wherever I'm at, God put me there first and foremost to point people to him, you know, mm-hmm. and to make disciples. And then after that, to do whatever I was called to. Okay. Ugh, you guys, um, new Christians lose 80% of their non-Christian friends within two years of becoming a Christian, which is sad. And only 2% of Christians share their faith, okay? And uh, that means basically that Christians don't know non-Christians, and they're not sharing with non-Christians. So we need to get out and meet people, <laughs> expose them to the gospel, and then trust the results to God, doing it all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is kind of where we're dropping the ball, but... These are going to be a few hardcore verses, so take them right between you and God, and I'm not pointing the finger, but I think we should remember these when we think about evangelism. In Ezekiel 3, 18-19, God says, When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out 
to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. <laughs> is that not scary? And God was speaking this directly to Ezekiel. But this is God's heart about encouraging us to share his message with a lost world and us not sharing that message. Okay? And he continues, But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Okay, now we live under grace. But is it evident there that God wants me to be sharing his message with people that need to hear it? Right? Or think about this in Judges 5.23. This is sketchy. Remember I talked about in the beginning where God said that he's called us to co-labor with him? Remember that? Mm -hmm. We're called to co-labor with him. We're, come, we're called to help God. Okay, listen to what he says in Judges about Meraz. God says, curse Meraz. Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Is that not insane? Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord. So God is, I mean, and it's, it's like, man, if you're, if you're a Christian, God's not like, I'm going to curse you. But I think it's important to see God's heart in this, right? Like, when he's called me to co-labor with him, it wasn't a flippant joke. It wasn't a matter of opinion. He wasn't like, if you feel like sharing your faith, then let's go do it. But God was saying, no, I'm your Savior and I'm your Lord and I, I have all authority to tell you to do this. It's not an option for me. The issue is obedience and lordship. Okay, so how can you be a part of this revival? This is pretty good. Paul had a strategy. You can read about that in Acts 17. Uh, it was, he said, as was his custom, he, did the, he went into the synagogue, preached, boom. Okay, now he had a strategy to share his faith, which I think all of us should have. There are certain questions that are going to come up in every conversation that I can weave in, like Austin was saying, like Russ was saying. I'm going to have a personal strategy to share my faith often and frequently in different settings, okay? Whether it's with people I know or don't know. Now, here's what happened to Paul. He goes to Philippi, he gets kicked out, like at the point of death and imprisonment. He goes to Thessalonica, he gets run out of town, again, at the point of death and imprisonment. Okay, he goes to Berea, gets run out of town. Goes to Athens, and uh, he was... Kind of well-received, but not terribly. Some people mocked him. Then he goes on to Corinth, okay, and he gets opposed and abused there. Goes on to Ephesus, and the whole city comes out riding to try and kill him. Okay, so like if I was Paul trying to evaluate my evangelism method, I think I'd be changing things up. Like, went to that last city and almost got killed. I'm going to be a little less bold in the next city. Now, here's what happens, guys, is your strategy needs to be something from God. I'm going to actively share my faith in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust results to God. And then I don't change that based on results that I see. I don't change it when people don't come to Christ. You know, Christians say like, ah, oh, you know, this ministry evangelism, it doesn't work. Not that many people get saved. And, and I don't think um, because not much, we didn't get much of a harvest, so quit. That's like saying we didn't get much of a harvest, so quit sowing seed. <laughs> the idea is, no, we didn't get much of a harvest, so sow more seed, Right? Right? Not many people responded, uh, I shouldn't stop sharing my faith, I should share it much more. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I, need to, I need to have this personal strategy to share my faith, and I, not, I cannot let it be affected by the results I see or the opposition that I experience. Okay, reproduction is a biological rule of life. Paul put it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He goes, I have to preach. I have to tell people about Jesus. 
Okay, your weaknesses, inabilities, and failures present no challenge to God's will for your life. Okay? But your willingness does. And the, the deal here, guys, is are you willing to let your life be used for eternity? I mean, that's a, that's a big question that each of us have to ask. Am I willing or am I not willing? Right? Now, as I close, Acts 1.8 talks about the Holy Spirit empowering us to witness. So my part is easy. I just need to be a warm body willing to open my mouth and then let him speak through me and do the work, right? Mm. Um, that's, that's, that's my part, and I need to do it in my Jerusalem, like it says in Acts 1.8, right? Which is your sphere of influence, your college, your workplace, the friends and relatives, neighbors that God's put around you. Guys, multiplication is the, the key. Now, if you start, guys, with 45 Christians, <laughs> going back to this same... This same graph right here. If you start with 45 Christians and you start multiplying, even start right where we are today, 2009. Okay, start with 45 Christians and multiply once a year. Once a year. Once a year. Once a year. This is possible. Pretty much every year of my life for the last... almost as long as I can remember, at least one person has trusted Christ after I've shared with them. Typically, it's, it's many more than that. And every year, at least since I learned how to do discipleship from Russ, which would be the last 11, but I didn't start till my junior year, so maybe like the last nine or something like that, I've been making disciples. So that, and it's not like it's impossible. Any of you guys can do this, and a lot of you guys do do this. But if we would do this as a lifestyle and teach other people to do this as a lifestyle, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul said, take what you've heard from me, Teach it to faithful men that can teach others also. So there are four generations. So I don't, I don't let it stop with me. I keep it going to the next guy and helping him learn how to keep it going to the next guy. Does that make sense? So that's multiplication. Mm -hmm. Okay, if we could do that, starting with just 45 people, in 29 years, guys, in 29 years, you would reach right at 9 billion people. Okay? 29, I'd be like 2038. Um, like, dude, if God hasn't called us now to do this process called the Great Commission, I mean, it, it just blows my mind. We can win this thing, right? We can see the world transformed. Now, here's, here's what Bill Bright said, and I love this. We think about evangelism and discipleship, making disciples. We think about it as a burden. The Bible tells us God's commands are not burdensome, Okay. Now, here's the deal. Bill Bright said there are no happy, disobedient Christians. There are no unhappy, obedient Christians. Did you get that? Mm -hmm. There are no happy, disobedient Christians. If you're disobeying what God's called you to, even the Great Commission, you're never going to be happy. There are Christians all over that are like, man, I listen to all the right music, I go to all the right meetings, I wear all the right Christian t-shirts, and I'm not internally happy. And it's because they're not taking the risk and participating in the adventure of the Great Commission that God called them to. There are no happy, disobedient Christians. There are no unhappy, obedient Christians. If you're obeying God, especially in this big area, you're going to be experiencing happiness and joy on, on a level that nobody else does. Okay? Because you're getting to work with God on a daily basis. All right. There's no fulfillment without risk, challenge, and adventure. I hope you guys got that this week, that those things were exhilarating and exciting. Okay, the Great Commission epitomizes all three. Okay, this is not like some 
task I have to do, and oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is an exciting thing that I get to participate in. If you feel like your life lacks meaning, significance, and fulfillment, you probably need to start sharing your faith. <laughs> okay? Because it's going to get real exciting real fast. You know, when you walk out of a metro in Frankfurt and your friend is talking to radical Muslims about their sin and how they need to trust Christ, <laughs> life gets to be very exciting. <laughs> like, huh, wonder if we're going to die in Frankfurt today. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope we may get to Moldova. So, and then I hope we don't die there. What's that? Exactly. Um, you guys, one of my favorite quotes is from the movie Gladiator. You guys ever see this with Russell yes. Crowe? Remember this quote where he said, what's done in this life echoes for eternity? Yeah. What's done in this life echoes for eternity. Man, I can't think of a more true quote, guys. And, and we get to be alive now. Soon we're going to be dead. And like Russ says, well, you never get to share your faith again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your life is short. Dude, I'm 31. I, I mean, it was like a week ago. I was like a freshman. You know, it's like before you know it, you're going to be 30. And then before you know it, you're going to be 60. And then before you know it, you're going to be dead, right? If I don't start doing this now, it's not going to happen. Um, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And here's the big question that I really want you to ask yourself. Is it possible to not obey his command to make disciples and honestly say that I love him? What do you guys think? That's a hard question, isn't it? But I mean, if I love my Savior, and He says, if you love me, you're going to obey what I command, gosh, uh, I kind of have to start being obedient to Him, right? I kind of I kind of have to start obeying His command. So I want to leave you with Isaiah 6.8. And this is where Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Remember this verse? God says, whom, who am I going to send, and who's going to go for us? Neat verse about the Trinity. God says, us. Um... It's exciting. But he says, who am I going to send? Who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. You know. And I want all of you guys, as you leave Crush Fear, we didn't think up Crush Fear as a staff team just so that you guys could have the cheapest Colorado vacation in the history of Colorado. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's not like, dang, let's charge people like barely as much as the food's going to cost for the week and then try and do every fun thing we can. The idea with this is expose you to fear, Help you learn what it takes to look fear in the eyes and cross it. But not just so that you can do it just to cross that fear barrier. But so that when you feel that fear of evangelism, you can say, you know what, I'm scared to death and I'm opposed. And even Christians are telling me not to do this. But my Savior is bigger than my Christian friends. And he's telling me to do this. And I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to trust him in the power of the Holy Spirit that he put inside me. And then I'm going to trust the results to God. I might get slapped by this guy, but that's okay. You know, like, it's God's business, not mine, right? When you face that fear to be able to walk through it, what about when you face the fear of discipleship? I'm much stronger in evangelism uh, and speaking and a lot of these different areas than I am in one-on-one discipleship. And, I mean, for set, or for five years on staff and for the few years before that that I was doing discipleship, it scared me more than anything. I mean, every semester when I meet one-on-one -on -one with guys, it scares me to death. I, yeah, it's just how... I'm a people person, but I have a hard time with one other person. Does that make sense? Like, I feel real comfortable with 100, but I don't necessarily feel so comfortable with one, right? Um, that's just how I'm wired. Erin, I think, feels more comfortable with one than with 100. She's the best at discipleship I've ever seen, practically. Um, so what I'm encouraging you with is you, you're 
probably going to face some fear <clears throat> about whether or not you have what it takes to disciple another human being, to help them grow in their faith. And I want to encourage you, the Holy Spirit has what it takes. So when you feel that fear, walk through the fear barrier too, and trust God, and then trust the results to Him. You know, I'll even share a story. There's a, a young couple that were students that were um, on our campus. Do you remember this story, Kirk and Nikki? Mm, I don't know where you're going. I'll delete this off the thing. But as a staff team once, like, <clears throat> it was their first year married, and the guy had been saying some things that were, he'd just been joking with his wife inappropriately, kind of like not so kindly and all this. And I remember somebody mentioned it, and I was discipling Kirk at the time. It only lasted one semester because I said, okay, I'll challenge him on this stuff. So I sat down with him, and I was like, dude, like, I don't think that's a cool way to be treating your wife. And, uh, do you think there are some different ways that you can encourage her? And he was like, I don't know. But, um, he thought through some different ways and all that. And I said, that, those are great ideas. Why don't you try that this week? Okay, he tried it. I didn't hear what happened. It was towards the end of the semester. I was sure this guy hates me. <laughs> this guy hates me. And so I didn't even ask him if I could continue meeting with him. Okay. I think two or three years later it was Brian Miller. He, he tells me, he goes, I just want to thank you because Emily and I were dating. And uh, Kirk told me, some advice that you gave him that he said radically changed his marriage. He shared it with us, and it radically changed our relationship. And he goes, so I, I want to tell you things, too. I felt like, I can't believe this, you know? I was so insecure that I didn't want to, like, I felt like I must have offended the crud out of this guy. But the Holy Spirit used it to encourage him, and then to encourage another guy. Does that make sense? What I want to encourage you with is, Trust God, whether it's in evangelism, whether it's in discipleship. You don't have what it takes, but the Holy Spirit does have what it takes. So, who are we going to send, is what God's saying. I want to encourage you tonight to say, God, send me. I want to I be committed to the Great Commission, and I want to be a part of winning the Super Bowl for eternity. I want to be a part of winning the World Series for eternity, the NBA championship. I want to be a part of this endgame, okay? Gosh, any comments? That is it. That was freaking awesome. Hope you freaking <laughs> put it into practice. No, seriously, dude, it's all God's word. Man, like, I'm not kidding you. Some of this stuff we, we've it. shared with different people. And uh, our pastor once, he gets up in front of the whole church, and he's like, Nate was telling me last week that the harvest is ripe. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it wasn't Nate, dude. <laughs> it's like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Jesus said the harvest is ripe. So it is freaking awesome because uh, um, it's it's God's word, right? Yeah. So let's win this thing, you know. Mm. Oh, I don't know. You know, that's why, like, part of me still wants to be friends with Austin when he talks about dying together in Mecca. <laughs> I think a normal person would be like, sweet, <laughs> I don't want to spend much time with you anymore. <laughs> but, you know, just like... keep praying about it for now, Nate. Yeah, just keep praying about it. <laughs> when your friend goes, I have a great idea. We could die together in Mecca. <laughs> you know? No, no, the plan is to sneak out. <laughs> but we could but die. we could die. <laughs> That'd be awesome, because think of what it would do to the Muslim world. It'd totally charge up Christians to share their faith. Wow, you're weird. No, no, but honestly, guys, we only have one life to live, and then we're going to be with God for eternity if we really believe what we say we believe. And if we do, is it worth dying for? Gosh, so you can live in eternity knowing that you gave everything to fulfill His great commission? Like, is it worth going to some Muslim country and dying? Hopefully not. It's not like you want to be stupid, but is it worth living the rest of your life in America with 
with a conviction to share your faith every day? I mean, more Christians, Christian workers in Alaska than there are in the Muslim world. Is that not nuts? There's mm. a billion people in the Muslim world. Wow. So wow. It's sad. It is. Gosh, you guys, in, in, it's not a death sentence to go to the Muslim world. Part of our conviction was to encourage people on the Crush Fear projects to eventually end up in the Muslim world. Well, no, to pray about it. But I think is, I think like honestly, like you were in Kyrgyzstan, and people weren't like, "I will slit your throat if you mention Jesus." No, they were really. They're more. I think they were more receptive over there than they are here. Yeah. Because it's not here. really how they feel. It's oh well, my parents are this, so I'm this. Yeah. I'm not happy with my faith. That's what I mean. I got out of like. Eight out of ten people I talked to. So we got with everybody we talked to yeah. in Turkey, and gosh, you know, we talked with this Muslim in in Romania that we've been sharing with for three years now, and Austin and I have like this two-hour hardcore conversation with him. Right. And we met with him the next day, hyped him. He's on my, he's one of my Facebook friends. If you guys look, but uh, anyway, golly, dude, like this guy, I asked him, "What's Islam to you?" He goes. Uh, don't drink beer, don't have sex, don't eat pork. But I drink beer and have sex. <laughs> like, so Islam is not eating pork to you? I mean, that's that's what it is in your mind? Man, Jesus is so much bigger than that, dude. Like, they're hungry. I mean, all over this world, people are hungry for Christ. So uh, let's do it. And we know big, huge, chubby white guys that are missionaries in Afghanistan. <laughs> like, if, if God can protect him there, he can protect anyone, right? <laughs> When I met him, I was like, okay, I believe. <laughs> it's not a death sentence to go there. He's not like some short, skinny, very dark-skinned guy that could blend in with the culture. You could blend in in some of those cultures. I definitely would not. <laughs> That's his plan. We'll start speaking in Arabic when we're in Mecca, and then I'll get the axe. <laughs> okay, well, I want to close it with that, because we want, if you guys, do you guys have anything else? I, yeah, take that time. After this next video, we want you guys to just take some time with you and God. They just like speak English over there in Romania and all that, or you almost yeah. all the youth do. They Every want to country, learn to speak yeah. English. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, like the biggest inn in the world. Yeah. It's the biggest so y'all just witness to him in history of the world. Yeah, witness to him in English of the world. What? So anybody yeah. who's you know well known or has power speaks English. I mean, we're in Turkey. You know, like. We're there. It's late at night. We're on this bus. It's just us. We have some directions. Like, we think this is the right bus. And, I mean, everybody's like, oh, yeah, we want to talk to you in English. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, and here's Austin, like, sharing the gospel, like, as loud as I'm talking now with this girl, like, across the aisle with him. <laughs> and this whole bus of Turks that are like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a few of these guys speak English. I'm sure a few of them have radical friends. <laughs> what's it? What's it God like? Is, we get off the bus stop. Like three of these big guys get off behind yeah. us. Here's Austin. Austin, the whole trip, dude. Whole trip, he keeps going Allah Akbar, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> I'm like, That's right. You know I'm sure Allah Akbar means God is great, and they always say that. And they're always like Allah Akbar. It's like what the pilot said, and they're crashing into the buildings. So yeah, it's kind of like a blaspheming of Islam, if you will. But they need to hear it on these buses. He's, he's like, "Oh, Akbar, and his name is Jesus." But he's like saying this out loud to me. No. But you're saying it to me. Oh, well, I'm not like yeah. saying it to them. Yeah, right. But I'm sure that people in our vicinity could definitely hear if they spoke English and understood. Anyway, 
But uh, he is great, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's okay. like, mental note, don't travel to Austin. <laughs> <Don't anywhere>. <laughs> <laughs> travel to Catholic countries with Austin. <laughs> <laughs> Except Ireland. <laughs> so what they what they say like whenever you're talking to the, like one of those closest friends uh, that were just Martyr. yeah telling oh, you. Oh, it was intense. You like, know I'm gonna quit was... recording this right here. <laughs>